Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. This is the second part of the Business and Human Rights Podcast. Um, and I'm joined again by Krishnendu Mukherjee, who is a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers, specialising in immigration and asylum law. And we will be updating the Business and Human Rights Podcast following the COVID-19 crisis and also the revelations in Leicester factories. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. There are places available to study law at Goldsmiths starting this September. Find out more at www.gold.ac.uk forward slash clearing. If you want to support the podcast, then please do leave a review in your chosen podcast provider, but also you can go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com and contribute a couple of pounds a month, which will be hugely appreciated and help make this podcast sustainable. Thanks so much for coming back on, um, Krishnendu. Um, We recorded the business and human rights episode of the podcast before COVID-19. So it was in February, actually, and it's taken me a while to get it out because of um, all the emergency episodes that have um, intervened. But actually, when I I listened back to it yesterday, um, while it was being edited, it, it... did sound pretty um, prophetic in terms of what we'd be facing during this crisis. Um, so well done on, on that respect. But I wanted to ask you first what you think COVID-19 and the, the, the lockdown and all of the very, the very many um, implications of this crisis have um, meant for business and human rights and what, what you think we can start to understand about that issue after covid Yes, well, I'm, I'm I'm sorry to have been prophetic in some of the things that I said, which, which have been borne out really and illustrated by this crisis. I mean, obviously, there has been a wave, start of the wave of the lockdowns happening around March, the middle of March um, this year, when um, people were required to stay at home, uh, shops were closed, businesses were closed. And um, we saw immediately that the lack of... Um, People going out and purchasing various items had an immediate knock-on effect in other countries. For instance, in Bangladesh, Bangladesh is a country which um, has a, a large garment industry and where uh, millions of people are employed in that garment industry, which is largely export-orientated. And many of the brands which we see in the UK high street, um, the H&Ms and the Primarks and um, other brands um, purchased directly from uh, these garment factories in Bangladesh. And what we saw is that uh, a number of brands, I'm not saying Primark and H&M, but a number of UK brands immediately cancelled orders and in, indeed in some cases didn't even pay for orders which they'd already received, um, which meant that factory owners had to um, close their factories immediately, lay off their their workers. Um, their workers then, because of the lack of money, migrated back to their home villages um, in the country for the most part. And we've seen all, all across South Asia, for instance, migrant workers migrating sometimes thousands of kilometers in order to, to, to return home when their jobs have gone. Huge mass migration and huge suffering in, in, in that. But the, uh, and in relation to Bangladesh, the Bangladesh government um, has had to take, I think, one of the largest loans in the IMF history in order to simply keep the garment industry 
um, afloat and, and pay the workers. And uh, I think what that illustrates is really the fragility of 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 how many of these supply chains um, operate and the lack of assessment that many of these larger companies do. So, for instance, what the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which is coming up to its 10th year next year in terms of uh, its, uh, its implementation, um, requires companies to do is to look at the, the effect of, for instance, cancelling orders um, before it, it does so. And what we saw, for instance, in terms of Bangladesh is, is that simply not happening. Um, and that's simply not the way that companies are required to behave in the current business and human rights context. And the guidance um, under of, of Guiding Principle 19 makes it very clear that where um, a business enterprise has an impact, uh, which is nevertheless di- directly linked to its operations, then when it considers terminating um, that business relationship, um, it should look at um, the enterprise's leverage over the entity, how crucial the relationship is to the enterprise, the severity of the abuse, and whether the termination of the relationship with the entity itself would have adverse human rights consequences. So um, I think guiding principle uh, 19 makes it fairly clear that before you decide that you're going to press a nuclear button and and say, I'm not going to um, have any contractual relation with you going forward because I can't sell my clothes, for instance, or I'm not going to pay for the clothes that you've already shipped to me. Um, it must consider um, a, a, a number of factors rather than uh, human rights factors, rather than simply economic necess- necessity. I mean, so I just wanted to try and um, dig into that, the idea that um, cancelling orders might have adverse human rights impacts, because I think that even people who are sort of quite um, well up on business and human rights ideas will be thinking probably more about the conditions in factories, um, the, you know, the fair fair, uh, payment to suppliers, those sorts of issues, the kind of sort of fair trade issues. But obviously a mass cancellation of um, of orders, which is going to probably put people out of work um, where they depend on that work, is also hugely important. But, you know, the, the, the counterpoint would be, well, if, if they can't fulfil the orders, as in if they can't sell the product, then what, what could they do differently? How could they, how could they respond in a way which m- mitigates that effect? Well, I think, I think what the, what the um, United Nations guiding principles require um, companies to do is not to sort of take the nuclear option, which is to pass their losses on to the poorest in their supply chain, which are inevitably going to be the, in this context, the workers um, who are already, um, uh, as is recorded, um, in being in the worst paid jobs, in the most insecure jobs, in the worst health and safety conditions in any event. And, and, and so um, what could have been done by brands is to not go for the force majeure clause of contracts and say this is something that um, we simply couldn't avoid and we cancel the contracts, we, can't, we, we cancel any contractual obligations. What they could have done, which is what some of the best um, brands have done is actually to say that we will pay. Uh, we may pay um, uh, later or at a reduced rate, um, but we, we we will certainly pay to ensure that you know people have some um, money coming in, and so factories can pay their workers um, some some money. They could they could send set up a, a fund 
for uh, emergencies for for workers who need money um, in the short term. So, I mean, all of these can be done. Economic leverage could have been used in a in a beneficial way in discussion with um, the suppliers in order to ensure that the effects of what is an unprecedented disaster, of course, aren't simply met by um, the poorest in the in the supply chain, and that um, for many brands. Um, is something that did not did not happen, and that's why we saw the the, the levels of suffering in in Bangladesh. Another issue which COVID nineteen has brought to the fore is the health um, and the protection of the health of workers, um, and obviously some industries are much more the, the workers are much more at risk um, of contracting COVID-19 than others um, so you know th- th- at the extreme end the kind of meatpacking business businesses um, I guess factories where people are um, packed in with poor ventilation at close quarters um, do you think that the, the the virus and the response to the virus has exposed sort of unsafe working practices or, or or have we seen more questions being generated about how in this kind of post-virus world businesses can do better to protect workers and to build um, working environments that are protective? Well I think I think in this country it's revealed the practices that were already taking place so for instance in two industries in the United Kingdom for instance in the garment industry um, and then focus has been placed on the thousand plus companies or thousand plus workplaces which um, are garment factories in Leicester where um, the majority of workers are migrant workers those with insecure immigration status in United Kingdom and the allegations are that certain factories in Leicester required despite there being a, um, a legal lockdown a banning of the operation of those factories required migrant workers to come in during the evening so people during the night so that people couldn't see them working and um, operate the factories as normal and these were obviously in total conflict to any health and safety guidelines Uh, no health and safety no uh, ppe was provided and uh, and workers were uh, exposed to the risks of contracting coronavirus in in that way similarly partly because of brexit and partly because of coronavirus we heard um, that uh, UK farmers had called for British nationals um, to go and help with the um, um, the harvesting of agricultural products, and I think that 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 uh, industry is dominated mostly by Eastern Europeans. What they found was that, despite the fact that um, the majority of pickers this year were from the United Kingdom, British nationals, um, health and safety was not respected in many of the circumstances in which they had to pick. So I think um, the coronavirus has illustrated the the lack of health health and safety concern, leave aside provision, for many of the workers who work in some of the most exploitative industries in this country. And you can imagine um, that that would be aggravated in, in other countries where there is less enforcement of laws where there is uh, more exploitation of workers where there is um, corruption and 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 lack of access to legal remedies um and so i'm i'm i i i'm absolutely sure that one of the reasons why for instance coronavirus is 
spreading so rapidly in countries like Bangladesh and India is because of the um, the lack of health and safety in in many of the factories. And I know from my contacts in these countries that workers are requiring required to be brought in um, are being asked to be to come in without proper health and safety uh, measures um, being put in place. And can we just um, focus in on the Leicester factory issues for a moment? Because I think they raise a number of um, of the issues that we discussed in the first podcast. And you you actually mentioned, um, as an example, the Leicester garment industry. So it's clearly something which is, it, it hasn't come out of nowhere. It's something which people have known about, not, not least you. Um, for a while, and and why do you think it's you know you know why do you think that has been um, allowed to happen? And when I'm talking particularly about the workers being pay- allegedly paid, you know, sort of three pounds an hour, which is well under the minimum wage, these unsafe working practices, sort of under the radar working where people weren't allowed to say they were working there, and um, because of the conditions and because of the pay, um, what what do you think's been going wrong? Well, yes. I mean, as you say, Leicester, um, the conditions in the factories and the Leicester garment factories was something that was certainly known in Leicester. Um, and also, I understand, even known by the authorities um, some years ago. And yet, um, these factories um, were were allowed to continue operating in a way that has been highlighted um, in the current uh, COVID crisis with the huge um, spike in Leicester's, which has led to the the recent lockdown. I think the problem is is that um, there's, there's probably a number of problems, but I, 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 I suspect it's um, um, a lack of a due diligence requirement by um, companies um, which are buying from uh, those garment factories. So, for instance, um, you know, these companies can say, um, as far as we were, we as far as we're aware, um, the people that we're buying from, the factories that we're buying from, our suppliers are all operating within the law. They're all op- they all have proper health and safety. They're paying their wages, the minimum wage, and so on. And yet, there's no real requirement for them to do any further investigation to look at the risks or to to see what the actual situation is, because um, there's no sanction. If they don't do that properly, there's no fine, there's no administrative sanction, there's certainly no criminal sanction. And so um, um, they can simply, if you like, close your eyes, close their eyes to the realities of the situation on the ground. Um, in terms of the factories and set themselves, uh, and it is a, an absolute shock that in, a, in one of the richest countries in the world, in a, in a developed country, you can have factories like this operating um is um as i understand it um a uh, a lack of uniform enforcement of uh, legislation um so what would uh, have helped i think is for instance if councils had power to go into factories and and assess what the situation unannounced visits um to assess uh, whether what uh, length of time people are what hours people are working what they were being paid um, what health and safety conditions um, there are, were there any allegations of harassment, um, either harassment because of um, immigration status or sexual harassment. And you obviously have to realize that as as with the agricultural industry in this country, um, most of these people are not aware of their rights because they're either migrants or their first language is not English or they simply don't have access to 
uh, that nature of advice. And these, if you like, provide a a sort of perfect storm for exploitation and for the conditions for exploitation and you know modern slavery. Modern slavery is a situation where people aren't paid the minimum wage, and so if 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 they were required to work long hours without that being properly calculated, then um, that is that is the definition of modern slavery. And the the company which has been at the heart of of this particular um, scandal was was Boohoo, um, which is a which is an online company. Um, and 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 it's very it's interesting that you you talk about the due diligence requirement because we we spoke about that at some length in the previous podcast and that's the this that the principle that um, a company does sort of due, human rights due diligence where they um, where they look at their supply chain and assess it for potential human rights impacts um, and one of the interesting things i noticed about the the boohoo um statement is they they've sort of said this is unacceptable and they've launched an investigation i think they've got a, a, a queen's council barrister to look at the uh, at how it happened um and they say it's you know the, the, we, we i'm just reading this from a statement we want to ensure that everyone working to produce clothing in Leicester is properly remunerated, at least to the minimum minimum wage, fairly treated and safe at work. We're grateful for the Sunday Times for highlighting the conditions at Jazzwell Fashions, that's the factory, which, as if they are described by the undercover reporter, are totally unacceptable and fall woefully short of any standards acceptable in the workplace. Um, our investigations have shown that Jazzwell Fashions is not a declared supplier and is no longer trading as a garment manufacturer. Um, it, it and and it's it, what I found quite interesting about that is it doesn't quite say we didn't know about it. Um, it sort of says you know it's unacceptable and it's terrible. But I guess I, I mean and 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 te- maybe they've got other statements somewhere else saying they didn't know about it. But it's sort of it, the the point you made in the first podcast um, and and Ray did as, did as well was it's 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 very difficult for these things to work if they're not compulsory because their companies can. Um, let things slide without really any requirement to to not well i suppose apart from the fact that it's illegal <laughs> um but what what do you think we we could learn what could be done differently um that could stop this happening again well i think um i mean one of the things that's come out of the covid crisis as i as i said is the, obviously the insecurity of supply chains and the need to make sure you know the phrase build back better has has been um, said um, many times now um, to ensure that our society, the industries, the people, the workers, all stakeholders in society, um, are more resilient to, uh, to 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 any future crisis, and and that that we we live in a more sustainable way. And, and one of the things that's come out is a announcement by the um, EU Commissioner for Justice that the EU proposes a mandatory a compulsory uh human rights due diligence and environmental due diligence law um which will come into force um in 2021 and uh at the moment they're consulting on what the nature of that uh those rules should be um who it should cover what the sanctions should be what the requirements what the standards should be which are extremely important what the plan should be um so um, uh, that is a very progressive step, in my view, because um, it'll mean that uh, companies like Boohoo would be required 
to ensure that their first-tier supplier, that is who they're direct, directly obtaining their clothing from, um, adheres not only to um, UK legislation, but also to the wider human rights impacts of, of their business activity. And if they don't, if they, for instance, don't do that, they could face sanction, but also um, um, if they... Uh, if they don't put in a in a process by remedying that using neuroeconomic leverage to remedy that, then they could also potentially face a sanction as well. Now the problem is obviously, as as we all know, the UK is no longer um, part of the European Union, and therefore this particular law, even if it comes into force, won't apply here. But um, we're hoping that in order for the UK to remain competitive um, and to continue trade with um, the European Union and indeed other other countries that we will have a strengthening, which is what we talked about in the previous podcast, um, a strengthening um, so that we have a level playing field of the Modern Slavery Act provisions here, Section 54, to make it a mandatory mandatory provision so that uh, UK businesses are required to do that um, as well. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Just one other question on Leicester. Um, Priti Patel has claimed that cultural sensitivities prevented a robust response to the worker explo- exploitation in Leicester. Um, and obviously there's lots of questions to be asked about that statement. But one, somebody um, made a point to me on Twitter that one of the problems with the modern slavery framework is that it comes through the Home Secretary. I mean, it's dealt with through the Home Secretary and the police, and it needs a wider um, wider response that focuses on working conditions and it comes, at, comes at it from a sort of labour perspective. I, I mean, labour with a small L. Um, do you think there's something in that, the fact that the, 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 the Home Office will always be um, have its eye on um, you know, the, its own concerns, particularly immigration and the police, and may not be thinking more holistically about the issue? Um, yes, I mean, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting that, uh, that this um, government is passing, a, passing laws now which will restrict immigration into this country except for the most skilled um, of workers and um, yesterday's announcement would on the new immigrations law would exclude for instance care workers who obviously have been lauded for their role in uh, in the in the covid uh, crisis and i think what the strengthening of immigration laws will do was simply in this context drive down illegal immigration and the kind of exploitative conditions in which immigrants who are low skilled will have to work um so the ones who are working in factories and agriculture um are generally low skilled and therefore will not likely come under the the ambit of uh under a uk immigration law and um so i think there is certainly a conflict between the home office 
um, implementing these kind of laws and uh, and the need to ensure that the most uh, vulnerable of workers, migrants and low pay workers are are are, are protected through um, any system of um, business accountability for their own business activities and those who are, are in their supply chain. Do you think there's any prospect of the UK um, implementing uh, compulsory ju- human rights due diligence following the EU um, and, and also following the, the recommendations of the Carter report that we discussed in the, in the last podcast? Well, I, I certainly think um, that that is the move. And I think we talked about it in the previous podcast. Certainly, we've been talking about the move from soft law to hard law um, for some time now. Um, and I think the EU announcement um, in April this year is you know, an indication of where um, laws are moving. We already have the law in France on which perhaps this, this law might be modelled, the droit de vigilance, which has a civil penalty. Um, we have the Dutch uh, law on child labour, which is uh, also a mandatory law. And we have other jurisdictions which are considering either strengthening their laws to make it mandatory or, or bringing in a, a mandatory law. So I think that... Um, despite the fact that uh, EU legislation will not have a direct effect um, or doesn't have a direct effect on uh, UK uh, legislation, um, I would hope that if Britain uh, wants to continue to be seen as a a country that takes, for instance, trafficking, and these are all related issues, interconnected issues, so modern slavery leads to exploitative conditions which leads to people migrating which leads to, to trafficking so these are all all related um, issues so if if, a, if the uk wants to still continue to lead the way on its protection of trafficking victims and victims of modern slavery then i would um, hope um, that um, it would strengthen the section 54 of the modern slavery act to make it mandatory and that is a call not just by ngos or trade unions but that is a call by, um, as we said, many, many companies, but also large-scale investors um, who want to ensure that there's a transparency um, in their investment and that there's a level, level playing field in, their, in, in who they invest, invest with. Um, so I'm, I'm quietly confident. And yesterday we had a webinar with um, the UK Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner, Dame Sarah Thornton, who uh, also supports voluntary to mandatory um let's hope that the home office listen to her and 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 the other and other people who support it well hopefully you'll be prophetic again um in that respect and we will add links to the um to the webinar and also to the various different things we've talked about in the show notes um which you can find at www.betterhumanpodcast.com thank you very much krishnendu for um coming on the podcast again it's been really interesting Thank you very much, Adam. So thank you very much to Krishnendu Mukherjee, who's a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. There are places available to study law at Goldsmiths starting this September. Find out more at www.gold.act.uk forward slash clearing. 
If you want to support the podcast, then please do leave a positive review on your chosen podcast provider. And you can also contribute a few pounds a month, which will help make this podcast sustainable at www.betterhumanpodcast.com, where you will also find the show notes um, for this episode, including links to the relevant documents and institutions which we have discussed. Thank you very much. I'm Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. See you next time. Thank you.